Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you're about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome to Habits for Happiness. This is Lady Fuller and the show that we talk about habits that you can employ in your daily life to make you happier. Here today on the show, we have Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. We are so blessed to have you here and talking about his latest work and latest book. And I'm going to let him introduce his book. But um, welcome, doctor. Thank you for being here. Sure. Well, it's really a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I'm first going to introduce your bio is so impressive and it's very long. So I'm going to consolidate it to the high points, but you're very um, uh, amazing. And I would say when I was reading this, I just felt like there's, there's a lot to you. And I'm so excited to chat with you about your habit that you chose today of music. So Dr. Erin Ahuvia is a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan Dearborn College of Business. And I think it's amazing to say you're the most widely published and cited academic expert on non-interpersonal love. We've never had anyone here talk about non-interpersonal love. And I'm excited to dive into this topic. You've published more than 100 academic papers, conference presentations, been quoted in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Glamour. He's appeared on public talk radio shows. He's been on the Oprah Winfrey Show, Love Her. And you have received awards for research and teaching. And I think the most important thing that we want to talk about today is your new book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And it was recently published. What was the publishing date? Oh, about six months ago. Okay, six months in the making. So welcome. And just tell us why the habit of music of all the habits you could have chosen. Tell us why you chose this one. Because it's been a central part of my life for a very long time. And because when I think about the things that make me happy, Um, And what I found in my research, uh, the way that things make people happy is that they connect you to other people. Mm. So sometimes people will say that, you know, objects in your life, things in your life can't make you happy. And there's a big insight there because a lot of the time they don't. And it sort of depends on what you do with those things. Right. Uh, But if you use the things to connect with other people then they absolutely can, I wouldn't say make you happy, but they can certainly help you be happy because it's those connections with other people that really are the single biggest source of happiness um, in in our lives and the lack of them, the greatest source of unhappiness, um, at least of the things that aren't genetic um, that we have control over. Exactly. And I want to just point out that, you know, there's been, this, this bid for connection is something that biologically, evolutionary, we've needed. We've needed connection to other human beings. And there is this push right now in culture to be quite self-reliant or self-independent or find happiness with the self. And I, I'm a little countercultural. It's my belief that we really, we need others for happiness, that we're not meant to be in isolated units. So tell us about that in scope of your work. Well, you're absolutely correct. Um, the leading theories in 
science around how the human brain evolved to be the wonderful complex masterpiece it is today uh, really focus on our relationships with other people. So it used to be thought that the reason people have this big brain that we have is because it helped us make tools and the tools let us succeed in life. Uh, we now know that historically over the period where we were evolving our big brain, our, tool, our tools didn't really change very much. Uh, and so that really, it wasn't it. But what was happening is our brain let us cooperate with other people and become better teammates with them and also compete against them more effectively because sometimes you're cooperating with other people and sometimes you're competing with other people. Both of those things are part of life. Um, and really what the brain evolved to do is help us do both of those things, relate to other people effectively, both cooperatively and competitively when we needed to. Uh, so the whole brain is really built around that. It's, it's fascinating. There are even some parts of the brain that physical places that are specialized for thinking about people as opposed to other things. So if you wow. look at a, if you look at a, you know, an object, a, a, a tile on the wall, you'll process that in one part of your brain. But if you look at a person's face, you'll actually process that in a physically different part of your brain. So your brain is always sorting out people from things and it treats them in really different ways. And we know this, if you think about the word um, objectification, mm -hmm. objectification means to treat a person like an object or to think about a person as if they, they were an object. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact that the word even exists tells us that there is like some way we think about people and it's different from the way we think about objects, right? Yes. And so that isn't just cultural. That's actually hardwired into your brain to treat people differently from objects. And a lot of what makes you happy, really your long-term happiness in life and a lot of your emotional motivations, they're really all around the people aspects of your life. Mm. That's what drives everything. Um, and that's what's, what connects. Some listeners might be wondering, isn't this guy, isn't he all about objects? Isn't he like the guy who talks about people's <laughs> love of objects? Why is he blathering on and on? about how our brain is designed for people and it isn't really all about objects. And it's because if you take, like we've all these objects that you see every day, like you just walk down the street and as you see millions and millions of things on the street and you walk into your house and there's tons of objects everywhere you go and 99% of them don't mean jack to you. I mean, you couldn't I care less about those things, but there are a few objects in your life that you really do care about that are special to you. Yes. Right? You might say that you love them, or if you don't like that phrase, you might say these are special objects or special possessions that I have. Right. Well, when you find out what's going on with the special ones, those turn out to always have at least one of two properties, which is they're either connecting you to another person or they're helping define your sense of identity. And your sense of identity is, of course, something that you bring out and helps you connect with other people. So, wow. so all of this, all, all our relationships with objects that matter to us, the ones that we think about and feel about, in some ways, they're relationships with people in disguise. So they're really ways of connecting and relating to other people, even though we do them through these objects. Yeah, this is awesome. So tell us what 
led you to write this book? What led you to this topic of, you know, non-interpersonal love? It started with personal love or interpersonal love, <laughs> I should say. Okay. Um, so define interpersonal and non-interpersonal for listeners who may be confused about the differentiation. Yeah, that's a lot of long words. Um, it's really simple. Interpersonal love is what we just normally call love. <laughs> when you love some other person, that's all yes. I mean by that. Yes. And non-interpersonal love are these weird situations where people love things that aren't people, whatever. It could be an object, it could be an activity, a place. You could love America, you could love your country, you could love your ethnicity. There's all kinds of things you can love, right? But anything, um, you know, I love music, whatever it might be, anything, if it's not a person, I needed a blanket term for that. And there isn't a word for it. I've tried for years to think of a word. One of the things- Did you invent the word? I I try okay I did invent a word. Okay, let's hear it. I want to know. It, it died it died decades ago when I tell you the word you'll understand why it never went anywhere. So the word is pragophilia. Pragophilia. We're bringing it back. Bring it back. This is this I worked on with, with a friend of mine who is a friend of our family who is a very well-known uh classics professor studied Greek and Latin. Um, a known scholar, and we tried to come up with a word with the Greek or Latin roots that would mean this. We came up with pragophilia, and it nobody knows. It doesn't make sense to anybody. It's a mouthful. It's a long word. It never caught on. So uh, we might, might want to update it to 2023 language, but we can we can find something. Right. We'll find we, something. We, we we could. So yeah, the other word. There's also a, another good word for this, which is just philia. Right. As in I like, like philia. I can uh, I can get behind that one. Right. And so philia is just, you know, we've got all these different philias. Right. Um, onophilia is like the love of wine. And so right. like there's all these different, you know, you got some prefix um, uh, and then philia means you love that thing. So that kind of works. The only problem with philia is that somehow, and I don't know if there's a linguist out there listening who can explain this to me, I have looked and looked and cannot find an answer to this question. But that's 185,000 people listen to this show. So we can what? find a linguist in there. Please write in to Dr. Huvia. Well, <laughs> here's the mystery. Here's the mystery. Okay. In Greek, they had a bunch of different words for love. And one of them, eros, meant sexual erotic attraction, mm -hmm. erotic love. And one of them, philia, meant uh, specifically non-sexual love, which is why when people love wine, we, we say they have a philia because they have a non-sexual love right. of wine, right? Love it. So, so where does pedophilia come from? Oh, where gosh. Does, right. So there's this, these words like pedophilia, which, which, isn't love of children of any kind. There's no love going on no, there at all. No, it has a very right? connotation, and, of course. And it, and it does certainly not a non-sexual love. It's like the opposite of what it ought to mean. But when I use the word philia, then people say, what about pedophilia? Oh, and then okay, I, I, didn't even, I, didn't even, I wasn't even going there. Right. You weren't. Uh, I wasn't you've, done, you've, got a very, you've got a very upright mind. But oh, many yeah. people, many was, people go power, there. So, power of positive people. Gratitude is probably one of my favorite habits. But anyways, let's get back. <laughs> so non-interpersonal love. What led you to study this and write a book about it? Oh, yeah. So um, I was a PhD student in the marketing program, the marketing PhD program at Northwestern at the Kellogg School of Business. And 
I was actually taking class from a, if you're among marketing people, a famous guy named Professor Philip Kotler. And he was all about how everything was marketing. And he even mentioned how he thought dating was marketing. Cause when you're dating, like you're marketing yourself to this other person. And I was single. I just thought that was way, way more interesting than real marketing. So I asked him if I could, you know, study that. And he actually said, yes. And put me in touch with another professor, Mara Edelman. We wrote a whole bunch of papers about dating services. We became these big experts on dating services at the time that dating services were just getting going and the internet was just starting. And we actually saw the transition, you know, over the very beginning of the internet with the whole internet dating thing. Uh, So we did that for a while and it was wonderful. And in order to do that research, I had to become an expert on romantic love and attraction so I could understand what was happening. Okay. So I spent years studying romantic love and then I needed to do something else for my dissertation. And I wanted to do something that business schools wouldn't think was so weird. Uh, because if you were like the dating services guy, it's just like the, the top business schools were not going to give me a job <laughs> if I was the dating professor. So you never so, know. This could be you a never know. Today they topic. might. Today they <laughs> might, but 30 years ago, that was not yes, going to happen. 30, year, 30 years ago, maybe not. So I thought, well, okay, so I already know a ton about the psychology of love and attraction. And I got to find something to do in marketing. What can I do? Okay, I can look at how people love objects and love brands and how that applies in marketing. And it turned out to be a tremendously fortuitous uh, take because people hadn't, of course, people looked a great deal at why people are attracted to objects or attracted to brands. But emotional love is different. It's right. Different. And they hadn't taken the psychology of love as we apply it to things and seeing like, what does, excuse me, as we apply it to people, the psychology of love as it normally applies to people and transfer that over and said, well, does that really affect the way we relate to things? And so I ended up being the first person to sort of open up this area. And it's become a really big research area. Um, I put in brand love is what we called it, brand love. I put in brand love to Google Scholar, and I came up with 14,000 papers published. So something to do with the topic. And most of those aren't mine, I can can assure you, the vast majority. So it's got a lot of people who are very interested in this topic. And I think it's it's a very cool topic. And that's how I got into it. I love it. And so love it, pun intended. But tell me quickly, or not quickly, is it possible to love music? I, you know, used to be married to someone who traveled to the far ends of the earth to see music, and I believe that he does love music very much. But tell us about that relationship because it's a powerful one. It's really powerful, and part of it is just because of the experience of music is so powerful. So, mm. so oftentimes the things that we love they have some sort of what we call intrinsic enjoyment, which is, this is an example of something that does not have intrinsic enjoyment, right? If something's just a tool, you don't like doing it, the thing itself, but it's going to help you. It's going to make you healthier, or it's going to have some other long-term payoff. People don't love those things. Like riding on the Stairmaster. Yeah. Riding on the Stairmaster, a perfect example. So I interviewed two women Mm-hmm. And one of them said she loved her exercise shoes. And one of them said, oh, those are good exercise shoes. I don't love my exercise shoes. It was very interesting. Nice contrast. And what it came down to, the woman who loved her exercise shoes enjoyed working out. Mm-hmm. And 
She saw them as part of this activity and she liked the process of doing it. And because of that, that sort of carried over to her shoes and she loved her shoes because it was part of this larger activity. Whereas the other woman said, you know what I realized? She said, I love looking good. I love being healthy, but I don't love exercising. If there was another way that I could look good and be healthy, that wasn't so hard. I would do that instead. Me too. But- so I don't really love my shoes because they're, they're just a tool. You know, we talk about people. We say, does does he love her or does she love him? Or are they just using the other person, right? So if something's just a tool, you don't love it. You're just using that thing. You yeah. only love it if it seems to directly provide you with enjoyment. I went to a concert two nights ago. It was an amazing concert. And I'm sitting there in this concert listening to this just fabulous music. And I'm thinking, wow, and it just sort of washes over you. And it's this and it's just like, yes, this is the epitome of intrinsic enjoyment. This is great. So the, part of it is just the pleasure you get directly from the music or this other, whatever it is that you love. But then there's also the way it connects you to other people and the way it connects to your identity. And you need both of those things or it's, or, or it's just going to be something nice. It's so it's a triumph of things. It's three things. Yeah. So it's like you got, you enjoy it, right? That gets it started. But like, I enjoy a lot of things. I enjoy ice cream, but I don't love ice cream. Some people do love ice cream. What's the difference between them and me is that for them, and you start talking to them about ice cream, you'll discover that ice cream, well, my parents used to feed us ice cream. And when I think of ice cream, I think about my parents, Mm -hmm. right? And so what's really going on is that there's this love for their parents and that's washing over and spilling over onto the ice cream. And that's how come they love really love the ice cream that combined with the fact that it tastes good, but it tastes good for me too. And I don't love it. I just think it tastes good because I don't have that other connection. Whereas for me, music connects me to all of like many, many of my friends and many parts of my life story. And it's, you know, listening to music is an activity I like to do with other people. Um, And that becomes a real basis for connection. So when I think about music, I'm not just thinking about the pleasure I get from the music. I'm thinking about, my friends who I listen to music with and talk to music, talk about music with them. And that's what makes it really love. One last little metaphor here, which is you could say that the, the way we love objects is like the light of the moon in the sense that the light of the moon is beautiful and it can be on some nights fairly bright but it's always really the reflected light of the sun. The moon doesn't emit light of its own. It's always reflecting from the sun. And the same way objects don't emit love on their own. When we love objects, it's always the reflected love of some other person um, that we connect in our mind this object to. And that's where you're getting really a lot of the emotionality. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. And I think... One of the things that music, it's its a great connector and many people likely share your love of it. Mm-hmm. And something I found, because I coach about I don't know, 24 CEOs or something, that many of us in our busy worlds don't do enough of the things that we love and not just are attracted to and bring us pleasure. Those are easy dopamine hits, the ice cream, the booze, mm-hmm. but the things we love, like going to see that concert or 
you know, tasting that wine or the other things that really bring us pleasure. So, so tell listeners, what's the importance for us as humans in our overall well-being of actually making this sort of, I don't know, love playlist to use your music metaphor and actually engaging in those activities? Oh, that's a great idea. A love playlist. Thank you. I mean, yeah. that again. Yeah. Um, and to, that's a great idea. You make like this list of things. So there's, there's a couple of different things. There's some things that we do and we find them really rejuvenating and energizing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, another example would be making little projects around the house, like making things out of wood or whatever. And I am terrible at this. Um, I know a lot of people who, who are wonderful and produce these gorgeous things. Everything that I make, it looks like the product, like it was made by a very, very talented eight-year-old is, you know. It the, matter. The, it's the love of the making. It's not about I, the outcome. I love doing it. it. I feel great when I'm doing it, right? And it's it it has this sort of energizing quality to it. So doing things like that um, is a, a really good way to connect with yourself as well as other people. And it's a, it's a great way to relieve stress. Um, much better than my other ways of relieving stress, like eating too much and drinking alcohol. You know, alcohol. That those are not as good as you know engaging in one of these things. So that's part of it is to just sort of energize yourself. But the other part that I always tell people is to think about the way things we love either do connect us or could connect us with other people, mm. and to try and do a little bit more of that. So I've been making an effort, you know, when I was younger with music, it was just the normal thing. Like what was the default activity in my friendship group was just, let's just get together and listen to music. So we just sit around and quote, listen to music, which really meant the music was playing in the background and we were talking to each other Mm -hmm. and, you know, having a good time. Um, And I'm working really to recreate that now. I haven't had that in 20 years as an activity. Somehow it just stopped happening when I was an adult. Uh, but I'm really intentionally I'm inviting people over and I'm creating this groups that do this um, because I want to have that experience, but I also want to use it as a way of connecting with people. Yeah. And what are the what are the positive effects of connecting with others? Oh, well, it's like nutrition for your brain. Uh, it really is uh, because in order to be an emotionally healthy person, you need to connect with other people and to do that at a deep way in loneliness, which is you know, what happens when you're not connecting with other people is terrible. It's not, pe- people think, oh, loneliness is unpleasant. Yes, it is unpleasant, but it's really bad for you. It is physical, terribly strong physical illness comes out of the emotional lack of connecting with other people. And if we think about human connection as sort of nutrition for our brain and our soul, you know, both wrapped together, then some of the things we do are the equivalent of junk food. So junk food is attractive mm-hmm. and it's pleasing for a moment, but it doesn't give you the nutrition that your body needs. And there are things that you can do that may entertain you for a little bit of time. So if you're feeling lonely, and you go and like, okay, I watch Netflix. You know, you might take your mind off the loneliness and you might be entertained for a couple of hours and that's good, but it's not giving you the emotional and psychological nutrition you need to be psychologically and spiritually and emotionally healthy. I love that. 
And so I'm going to encourage all listeners to make a love playlist of the things that they love, objects or modalities or music, for example, sort of these sort of non-tangible, but not, not personal, right, or people, items they love and do more of that, you know, once a week or more, because the pathway to connection is what I hear you saying is sort of it's, it's so good for the soul. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people find more of you? So people may be listening to this and be like, I need to have Dr. Huvio speak at my next conference. How would they learn more about you and where can they find your book? Okay. So the book is available in like most bookstores, certainly on Amazon or any of the, uh, uh, those places, but also, you know, try your local bookstore first um, (laughs) and let's support our local bookstores. And it's available in in, in most of those. Uh, And so the book is called, the things we love, how our passions connect us and make us who we are. Um, and then you can find me at my website, which is also coincidentally thethingswelove.com. And so there's a, a lot there. And I thank you for mentioning speaking because I do two types of speaking and I really enjoy both. One is speaking to just average citizens, you know, people want to understand their own lives and the role that loving activities and objects can, how that can make them happier and give them a richer life. And I not only do talks, but I've got workshops and sort of activities that we, that we do together. Um, and people seem to find those pretty fun and enjoyable, but then I'm also, I'm a marketing professor. So I talk to a lot of businesses about what's called brand love, which we haven't really talked about today. And that's just fine. But brand love is, you know, how do you get consumers to love your brand? And is that even a realistic goal? Is that even something you should be trying to do? Or what's the, you know, for your business, the most realistic way to go about things? So a lot of businesses uh, have me talk about that as well. And that's another sort of another professional side to what I do. Oh, I love, I love this. I'm saying for the millionth time, Dr. Huvia talking to us about non-interpersonal love and really this idea of the meaning we assign to activities or passions or things, and therefore find connection through those activities, passions, or things. I think it's brilliant. So thank you for being here. I could talk to you all day long and everyone tune in next week for another riveting habit that could change your life. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next time on the Voice America Variety Channel and discover how to find your new happy place.